It's time for Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070. Joining us, uh, as always, is barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Good morning, Michael Mulligan. Good morning. Great to be here. Lots on the agenda today. I'm reading here search warrants for companies allegedly involved in mass mailing of solicitations to the United States that could be fraudulent. There's a lot to digest there. So help us understand what this is all about. Yes, indeed. So that generally is frowned upon in in addition to being (laughs) potentially illegal. (laughs) Yes. And so this was an investigation that has been going on in the United States that involves two companies based out of Vancouver that are alleged to have uh, been involved with the mass mailing of fraudulent uh, material to exploit what are described as vulnerable groups, seniors and others, uh, of large amounts of money uh, in the U.S. So not surprisingly, uh, the U.S. authorities uh, were uh, investigating these two uh, Canadian companies. Uh, the companies uh, allegedly were doing things, including one of them had special database software that would, I guess, interface with the list of allegedly vulnerable people they were trying to exploit. Uh, and so the uh, the U.S. authorities wanted to have a search done to gather information about what fact was going on to these two Vancouver companies. So how does that work? If if you're a U.S. investigator and you're trying to get a search warrant in Canada, well, you you can't go to a U.S. court and ask for it. They don't have any authority in Canada. And so the way that works is that Canada and the United States have an agreement. It's often referred to as a mutual legal assistance agreement. It's got a much longer name if you spell it all out, but it's a mutual legal assistance agreement with respect to investigating criminal matters. Mm -hmm. And so if one country or the other uh, is wanting to, for example, obtain a a search warrant to search business or premises in the other country, they would make a request of the country. So in this case, the U.S. authorities asked Canada, pursuant to the treaty, would you please get a search warrant to allow uh, a search to be conducted of these two companies allegedly sending out these fraudulent mass mailings? And so... The Ministry of Justice Canada made the application on behalf of the United States, got the search warrant, uh, and then a search was conducted of these two Vancouver companies. Uh, But that's not the end of the matter, uh, because the companies that were searched, the alleged fraudulent mass mailing companies, sought a review of the search warrant. Uh, And that kind of a review is often referred to as a Garofoli review. Uh, And the way that works is this. When uh, a a search warrant is being applied for, it's necessarily being applied for what's called ex parte. The other person being searched, for example, isn't there to oppose it or ask any questions about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when a uh, a police agency is applying for a search warrant, there's an obligation that they provide full and frank disclosure about what it is they want to search for, why they believe there's evidence in that place. And then a judge would review the application and determine whether the search warrant should be issued. But after the fact, like after the search is carried out, the uh, person or company that was searched could challenge the search warrant uh, and have one of these kind of hearings, which just occurred, and that kind of hearing that would review that decision to issue the search warrant is referred to as a Garofoli review. Now, on that kind of a review, the judge doing the review doesn't ask themselves, would I have issued the search warrant? 
it's kind of like the deference that would be provided when there is an administrative decision and there's a judicial review of it. Okay. Um, and similarly, the judge doing the Garofoli review of whether that search warrant should be issued uh, needs to approach it from the perspective of could the initial judge have granted uh, the search warrant on the basis of the information that was before them, uh, along with uh, what can be referred to as amplification uh, or um, further evidence about uh, what was in the search warrant application. And so on that Garofoli review, the judge might, uh, for example, permit the cross-examination of the person who issued the warrant uh, or other evidence to come before them. And they could look for things like did the party applying for it, did they fail to disclose important things, or did they put misleading evidence in the application, or is there some new evidence which would uh, go to whether the original judge uh, could have issued the search warrant uh, at all. But the whole review is conducted from that perspective of could the original judge have properly issued the search warrant, not would I, the reviewing judge, have decided to issue a search warrant? Hmm. And so that's what was conducted in the review, uh, the Garofoli review, which was just completed, looking at whether the uh, government of Canada should have been granted the search warrants to search these businesses in Vancouver to help out the U.S. investigation. And so the judge here uh, heard additional evidence about uh, uh, what was going on and permitted uh, examination of the information that was originally provided, uh, but ultimately concluded on that basis that I've indicated that the original judge who did issue the warrant uh, issued it properly. Um, and it's important that there be that prior judicial authorization for a warrant. Yes. Our, the, our system doesn't involve, you know, go and kick the door down and then ask permission later. Yeah. It does need to be, you know, approval in advance. But uh, there is then provision for this kind of a review after the fact. And that's important as well, because, of course, when the warrant was applied for, the person getting searched didn't have any opportunity to stick their hand up or call other evidence or uh, challenge or ask questions about it. Uh, and so here, these two companies uh, were permitted to do that, and there was a thorough review. Uh, and the judge conducting the review concluded that Indeed, the judge who initially granted the warrant uh, did have a basis for uh, doing so. Uh, and so the result of the challenging the warrant was unsuccessful. And so the U.S. Uh, investigators will have the benefit of uh, the evidence from these two Vancouver companies uh, in their ongoing multi-year uh, investigation uh, into whether they were engaged in uh, fraudulent uh, activity with these mass mailings trying to defraud money from vulnerable people. There it is. All right. All right. Uh, Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. We've got two more stories left in our agenda for this week. Would it be preferable for us to take the break now before we jump into the second or do the second and then jump into a break a little late? Sure. I think probably a good time for the break. The next one's got a a few uh, elements, so it'll probably require a few minutes to talk about. Indeed. And it's one in which I take a keen interest, given other stories that have caught my attention over the last year. So I look forward to benefiting from your analysis. Michael Mulligan will continue with Legally Speaking right after this. Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070, Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, continuing. Michael, the second story, the provincial court upholding a decision to mass adjourn criminal cases due to COVID-19. What's the story? 
Yes, indeed. So back in on March 17th of last year, that was the day when British Columbia issued the public health emergency that uh, uh, started all of what we've been dealing with now for more than the last year. Well, yes, it didn't start it. It was the response to it. Uh, but on that very same day that British Columbia declared a public health emergency, the British Columbia Provincial Court, in the form of uh, the chief judge, uh, issued a directive which adjourned all uh, out-of-custody criminal matters en masse that were scheduled between March 18th and May 16th. They just put them all off. Uh, and then uh, that was further extended uh, for a period between May 19th and July the 3rd. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll all recall back what was going on at that time. Nobody was quite sure what was going on with the uh, virus. People didn't know whether you were had to wipe down your uh, grocery bags or whether you were getting this from, you know, touching the doorknob or, or yeah. quite what it was. Um, and so there was uh, extreme concern about what was going on. Um, and at that time, of course, the uh, courts hadn't been modified to try to increase safety. We've such since then done things like uh, plexiglass has been put up and they've moved desks apart and that kind of thing. Uh, and they've adopted all manner of uh, policies to put as much as can be done uh, online. Like, you know, appeals are heard by Zoom and sentencings are done by MS teams uh, to try to uh, reduce uh, the risk to everyone involved. But the issue that the court was just dealing with here is an issue of whether that mass adjournment resulted in what's referred to as a loss of jurisdiction over the various people involved. Hmm. And the concept there is this. The Provincial Court of British Columbia is a statutory court. It means it was sort of created by statute. It doesn't have inherent jurisdiction, like, for example, the British Columbia Supreme Court would have. Hmm. Um, and when you have a court of inherent jurisdiction, like the B.C. Supreme Court, some of the powers of the court aren't things which have been sort of delegated by the legislature or by um, the parliament. It has constitutional authority to uh, deal with some matters. And we saw that, for example, with the recently where the uh, provincial government was trying to transfer uh, authority to deal with some um, car accident matters to that civil resolution tribunal. Yes. And the chief justice of the B.C. Supreme Court concluded no, you can't do that. Um, you don't have authority to do that. That's within the jurisdiction of the court, and it's not up to you. Thanks so much. Now, that is a, a different circumstance from what would happen with a court that is statutorily created. So, for example, with the British Columbia Provincial Court, its authority derives from statute. So you'd have to look at things like go to the criminal code and look up and see, okay, well, you know, what can a provincial court judge do, right? You look it up. You have to find some uh, authority for anything the court wishes to do. Yes. And one of the elements there uh, would be the issue of jurisdiction over the individual accused in a criminal case. There has to be some authority to require somebody to show up in front of the court to be dealt with according to law. Right. You, the police can't just go and, you know, drag, drag somebody in off the street and say, here you are, judge, do something with this person. Yes. Right. Yeah, absolutely. There's a process in place. You have to have some authority to arrest the person and then you could uh, release them. If, uh, uh, for example, on an undertaking that might require the person to attend court. 
where there could be a warrant issued for somebody's arrest, something to compel the person to come there. Uh, and then there's a process, which is set in the criminal code, that would allow uh, a case to be adjourned from time to time. So, for example, if somebody was arrested on a warrant uh, and they were given a date to uh, attend court for the first occasion, they show up. The matter is not likely to be a trial. The very first day they show up, things might have to happen. The person might need to hire a lawyer. Yes. Or they might need to get some information about what they're charged with, for example. And so the case for that person could be, and ordinarily would be, adjourned. A judge might say, okay, uh, that's fine. Come back in two weeks once you've hired your lawyer and had a look at the material, and then you can tell us if you wish to plead guilty or not guilty. See you in two weeks, right? Mm -hmm. And then the idea is that you would have, by that process, following the procedure set out in the criminal code, you would maintain jurisdiction over the individual. There would be a an obligation for that person to come back two weeks down the road. You don't, in a criminal case, have a process whereby a judge would say, well, okay, here you are pursuant to a warrant. Come back whenever you're ready. <laughs> right? <It would laughs> yeah, I can see how that might be abused. That might not occur, right? Yes. So the, the, the scheme involves having a, a definite time when you've been told you must come back on this day. Mm -hmm. And if you don't do that, if in some odd world a judge just said, well, you know, well, we'll see when we see you, <laughs> then the court would have lost jurisdiction over the person. I see. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's interesting. And if you wanted to compel the person to come, you'd have to do something like issue a warrant for their arrest, for yes. example, or get a summons and mail it to them, telling them to come, whatever it might be. Um, and, you know, that might occur from time to time. Odd things happen. You know, mistakes are made. You know, the things have turned over to a Saturday. Nobody's there, right? Yes. That happens. And when that happens, there would ordinarily need to be some new document or process pursuant to the criminal code, for example, to compel the person to come back, right? Sometimes it might happen voluntarily. A person might just say, well, I don't, I'm not worried about that. Here I am. You, you need not issue a warrant, but you've got to get the person there somehow. So that brings us back to what happened on March the 17th and then again on April 28th. And on those occasions, the chief judge of the B.C. Provincial Court just en masse said, these thousands of cases are all adjourned. <laughs> and they posted the information on the court's website. Okay, well, what just the decision that just uh, came out dealt with, well, did that result in a loss of jurisdiction over those people? Um, they weren't there. You didn't tell them come back in six months. You just posted something on the website saying, all the cases for these days are now over to this date. Well, what's that? Have you lost jurisdiction? And so that's what a different judge on that court was uh, struggling with here is, did that lose jurisdiction over the individual and result in the accused were here saying that this resulted in a uh, circumstance where the cases should be dismissed for want of prosecution? And you might uh, hear that phrase in the context of, well, this is how it might occur, Let's say your case is set for trial. You dutifully show up for your trial. Here I am. And the Crown just doesn't show up. No one's there, right? You're there. Your lawyer's there. The judge is there. No one came. Well, in that case, your case could be dismissed for want of prosecution. Nobody's mm -hmm. here to prosecute you, right? Yes. There's no evidence. On you go. But here, the judge reviewing what happened looked at some authority in the criminal code, and you've got to find authority for it because... It's a statutory court. 
and all of their authority has to come from some statute. They don't have just inherent jurisdiction to do things. Uh, But there is a provision in the criminal code that allows uh, the provincial court, the chief judge, to make rules uh, with respect to how court is to operate. You know, what time should court start in the morning? Or, you know, what should forms look like if you want to make an application? Various rules to try to, you know, aid in the administration of the court. Um, And the criminal code permits rules to be made that are uh, not inconsistent with the criminal code with respect to the administration of the court, basically. And so what the judge reviewing the circumstance of these, how many were there, four people that were challenging what happened, concluded that this decision to mass adjourn all the cases as a result of the uh, declaration of the emergency and COVID uh, amounted to the creation of a rule uh, that uh, put all of these cases over without needing the individuals to attend in person and said that, well, the the direction, which was referred to as NP-19, could simply have been called the NP-19 COVID-19 rule, (laughs) and therefore it would have been permitted. And so on that basis, and on the basis that uh, courts like the provincial court would have authority to control their own process, which is something that uh, has been found to be uh, implied by some of the authority settled in the criminal code. Hmm. Uh, That, for example, let's say, you know, the the judge has authority to conduct the trial. So you've got to find some authority for it. Yes, yes, okay, a provincial court judge may conduct a trial of a particular sort. Implicit in that, for example, would be that the judge conducting the trial would have, uh, by necessary implication, the capacity to sort of control the process in the courtroom. You know, somebody just stands up in the back and begins screaming and blowing an air horn. You don't need to find a section in the criminal code that says the provincial court judge may stop somebody from blowing an air horn yes. <laughs> or tell them to stop screaming or get out of the courtroom. Yeah, It's by implication of the fact you've been told you can conduct a trial. How can you possibly conduct a trial if somebody can just with impunity show up and yell over everyone, right? Yeah, that's a problem I've been dealing with lately, so I know it all too well. That's right. <laughs> you need some authority under the criminal code, right? It's, I think, uh, by necessary implication, you've got authority to control that. And so the judge found for those two reasons that there was jurisdiction to do what was done here, that the court did not lose jurisdiction, and it wasn't necessary to, for example, issue new warrants for the arrest of the thousands of people uh, who had their cases adjourned in that way, because that's what otherwise would have been required Hmm. if you wanted to uh, regain jurisdiction over the individual uh, to require them uh, to show up. And so whether there will be any appeal of this or not is an open question, uh, but at least the, uh, the decision of the Associate Chief Justice of the BC Provincial Court found that for those two reasons, the uh, decision to uh, adjourn those thousands of cases en masse didn't result in the uh, loss of jurisdiction over all of those uh, individuals. Um, Now, I should say there are some practical issues there, Mm -hmm. uh, because for some people, it might be completely reasonable to say, well, just look it up on the website. What do you think happened? Right? Talk to your lawyer, figure it out. That's fine. It, it, but it, it's the the category of people for whom uh, that may not be pra- the practical reality would be what do you do with the mentally ill person who's addicted to drugs who you know showed up on March 23rd took the door of the courthouse nobody was there to let them in and they just kind of left 
right? Yes. There, there could be some people for whom there might legitimately be some uh, hardship created by that, and the, there will have to be, and there is, I think, discretion exercised about, you know, what do you do to compel that person to show up to deal with their now year-old shoplifting case? Yeah. Do you issue a warrant for them? Do you try to give them a summons? What do you do? Uh, bearing in mind that there may be some people who legitimately just had no idea what on earth happened here. Yeah. You know, they managed to sort of shuffle to the door to find it locked. Uh, and, you know, what can you expect of that person to try to, you know, look up NP19 on the provincial court website to figure out when it is that they should have showed up to get the thing back on track? We've got uh, just over two minutes left, and I see here an acquittal in the case of an unsightly Prince Rupert garbage bin. Yeah, this one, I think, uh, requires about two minutes. Um, I must say, when I see cases like this, they always make me smile, because for many people, these are the only kind of uh, involvement they're ever going to have with the criminal justice system. This was a case involving an unsightly garbage bin uh, up in Prince Rupert, and the judge concluded, pursuant to pictures, indeed, it was quite unsightly. Uh, the garbage overflowing all over the place. But the particular bylaw uh, specified this. No owner or occupier of real property shall allow that property to become or remain unsightly. Uh, And so in this case, uh, there was much evidence that the garbage bin associated to this apartment was indeed, as the judge said, an unsightly mess, overfull and spilling onto the ground. The challenge was, that there was no evidence that the garbage bin was in fact located on the property uh, of the apartment building. It was in a back alley behind the apartment building, which may well have been property owned by the city of Prince Rupert itself. Oh, by the city of Prince Rupert to ensure that, uh, that being the owner of the property, that the garbage bin wasn't unsightly. So the particular bylaw doesn't make it an offense to own an unsightly garbage bin. It only requires you not to uh, allow property that you are occupying to remain unsightly. And so as the judge pointed out, you know, perhaps the city should have cleaned it up or charged the person under some other bylaw. I do not know. That is not what I'm here to decide. (laughs) But there is no evidence that the particular apartment building in question was allowing its property to become unsightly. It may just have been heaving its garbage into the alley (laughs) in this overflowing bin, which doesn't, in fact, constitute a bylaw infraction. And there we go. And court time was expanded to determine that. That's correct. In the middle of COVID, we conducted the trial. But (laughs) I've got to say that about this. Uh, This case is an example, like many other things, like traffic court decisions. For many people, they are the only time they're going to have anything to do with the criminal justice system or the legal system at all. And so, in my view... It is very important that when somebody, sort of an ordinary person, winds up in this kind of a uh, case, that we deal with it uh, in a fashion which is careful and, uh, you know, legally rational and well-analyzed and independent, because that's going to have an impact on this person's perception of the criminal justice system and the legal system. Uh, And in many cases, that's the only experience somebody's going to have. And people, often those are going to be your witnesses and jurors and so on on potentially very important cases down the road. So in in my view, it's a a really good and happy thing uh, that we do take seriously people alleged to have had overflowing uh, garbage bins or went through the red light and ensure that they have a fair trial. Uh, And it certainly looks like uh, that's what happened uh, for the Angus apartment building in Prince Rupert. Michael Mulligan, a pleasure as always. Until next week. Thank you so much. Stay safe.
Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking on CFAX 1070.